voice, and my poem is titled White Boy Privilege. Dear women, I'm sorry. Dear black people, I'm sorry. Dear Asian Americans, dear Native Americans, dear immigrants who come here seeking a better life, I'm sorry. Dear everyone who isn't a middle or upper class white boy, I'm sorry. I have started life at the top of a ladder while you were born on the first drum. I say now that I would change places with you in an instant, but if given the opportunity, would I? Probably not, because to be honest, being privileged is awesome. Hello and welcome to Just Talk, Educational Equity, the podcast about social justice and how it relates to everything education. Today, that is exactly what we're talking about. Everything social justice and education. I'm your host, Tony Neal. And I'm your co-host, Deborah Bowman. To lead off, we're listening to a spoken word performance by a student named Royce Mann called White Boy Privilege. Let's listen to some more of his voice. Just a warning that there is a little bit of language here. He's using it to make his point, so it's not just gratuitous. Uh, Let's go back to Royce. I'm not saying that you and me on different rungs of the ladder is how I want it to stay. I'm not saying that any part of me has for a moment even liked it that way. I'm just saying that I fucking love being privileged and I'm not ready to give that away. I love it because I can say fucking and not one of you is attributing that to the fact that everyone with my skin color has a dirty mouth. I love it because I don't have to spend an hour every morning putting on makeup to meet other people's standards. I love it because I can worry about what kind of food is on my plate instead of whether or not there will be food on my plate. I love it because when I see a police officer, I see someone who's on my side. To be honest, I'm scared of what it would be like if I wasn't on the top rung, if the tables were turned and I didn't have my white boy privilege safety blankie to protect me. If I lived a life lit by what I lack, not what I have. If I lived a life in which when I failed, the world would say, told you so. If I lived the life that you live. So that's just some of that poem. Um, You can see the rest of it on our website. What did you think about that, Tony? Uh, incredible, powerful, uh, very profound. It is nice to see a young man that has that insight into what white privilege is. Uh, no doubt that he will use his privilege or be able to flex his privilege uh, for the better. Yeah. So today for our deep... Oh, do we want to do an icebreaker first, Tony? Sure. Okay. Do you have something? <laughs> This is what happens, Alvin. You're going to have to do a lot of editing today. (laughs) Where in the world have you shown up as being absolutely amazing, as being awesome? Where in the world have I shown up as being absolutely amazing, awesome? This is what we do to think as we repeat the question, by the way, (laughs) and then we stall. And, you know, I will say I show up being absolutely awesome, um, when I'm with the grandchildren, um, nice. especially my granddaughter, I know she looks at me as the ultimate everything. So I'm like a mediocre piano player. But when we sit down on that piano bench together, she's five years old. And when we sit down on that piano bench together, she thinks she's hearing a virtuoso. Oh, wow. And when we're in the kitchen, we were watching the Great British Baking Show, and she's like, Grandma, you would win. You should be in that show because you are the best baker of everything. 
<laughs> and one time I was at her preschool, and there was one of her classmates was crying. And she goes, Grandma, go in there. Grandma, go talk to her. You are the fixer. <laughs> I'm like, yes, I am the fixer. <laughs> wow, that should really make you feel good. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's just awesome. And, you know, looking at myself through her eyes just brings a lot of joy. Yeah. How about you, Tony? Where do you show up? Absolutely awesome and amazing. Certainly, I like to think that I show up well or awesome as a parent. However, my my kids are, are older and they're out of the home, so they would probably say that. But I think I show up awesome in the work that I do. Uh, being a social justice leader, social justice advocate, uh, doing this type of work all over the world, uh, I think that's kind of where I show up awesome. There are areas that I struggle with being awesome or, or showing up amazing. And I think sometimes that's where I second guess to myself as being a black man in this world. You know, what does that really mean? And to the, the baggage that comes along, and I don't necessarily want to say baggage because I wouldn't want to be anything else but a black man. But sometimes the challenges of the struggles that come along wanting to show up and be your best and um, how that kind of weigh you down at times. You know, um, just from the work associations that we have outside of you know, doing the podcast together, but I know there are just so many people that look to you as a mentor and that do count on your leadership. And in the years that we've worked together, you know, you're um, – I mean, people who listen to the podcast may not know this about you, but I see you as this sort of naturally uh, a really quiet kind of guy. I mean, when when we're in a room, you know, you are not the one that people are that's entertaining, but you are the one that people look to for leadership and experience and sort of this very calm, reasonable way of approaching a problem. I mean, I can see why people turn to you. Well, I certainly appreciate that. That's good to hear sometimes. Yeah. So for our deep dive today, we are calling this episode, What Do You Know? A Social Justice Glossary. So um, one of the things that I know we've done in the podcast all season long and that happens for people who are kind of just getting started in these conversations or even as people move along is there's a lot of terminology that a lot of phrasing and that gets used. And I know that we've been using all season a lot of these things. And I think different people have different levels of understanding on this. And I just thought it might be interesting for us to talk about some of these concepts and go through some of this terminology and just sort of um, talk about, you know, what does it mean and and times in which these uh, concepts have been meaningful or that we might have learned something in our experiences from looking at these. So Certainly. I think that's great. All right. That's great. So I guess one concept that uh, we often put out in our training is impact versus intent. You know, so Deb and I, Deborah and I, we might be having a conversation, and I might say something to Deborah with a, a very positive intent. However, how Deborah receives that information is the impact, and I have no authority or nothing to do with how that information is received. 
However, between the two is what we call the arc of distortion. So sometimes that's where agreement and challenges come into play. And that's where we need to have that deep dive in terms of a critical conversation. So, you know, intent versus impact. You might think as a listener, what are some times that you have positive intent in speaking with someone? However, the way it came across was something totally you did not expect to come, it to come across that way. And what was the arc of distortion? What was it that was distorted um, by the listener? So as a white person, I know when um, I say or do something that comes out of one, out of my intent, and let's say a person of color tells me, you know, this was the impact of what you said, what you did, that it really behooves me to spend my time listening to the impact rather than trying to get them to, you know, some, somebody to release their sense of that, you know, that there was something negative about what was said or done, that it's, it's more important for me as a white person to just reflect on what I have done and not try to talk somebody out of their, out of the impact. Oh, absolutely. And that's why you would see in our trainings that we spend a lot of time on active listening, doing listening pairs and listening dyads and uh, critical listening. We like to often say, listen with the heart, not with the head. So listen to to kind of see what the other person is feeling. Uh, that's a good way of, to listen. Yeah, that's true. And I, I know that um, makes such a difference when I'm when I'm focused on the listening rather than on my explaining. And as a white person, you know, that's just something that's part of privilege is feeling as if, well, I always need to be given the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And yeah. um, you know, and it's also a great model to think about uh, for teachers to think about in the classrooms. You know, what is the intent of your lesson that you are trying to convey uh, to young kids of color, and what might be the impact? how they receive that lesson. Uh, that's just something to think about. Yeah. So here's another concept, um, looking at the concept of allyship and moving from ally to accomplice. Mm -hmm. So um, I know when um, we think about this, when I think about it as a white person, for me to think of myself as an ally, I think of myself as an ally to people who are uh, in other identity groups that might be more oppressed. And so as a white, cisgender, heterosexual woman, there are a lot of areas of privilege that I experience. And my job is then to consider other people's experiences. So how are people impacted by oppression? And to be sensitive to that and to listen and to work in a partnership with those who experience oppression and to try to sort of root that out and overcome that. Yeah, absolutely. I think when I, when I think or when I see white people as allies, I think of this is how we build bridges together uh, and, not, and tear down walls. <laughs> and that, that whole connotation of walls has a, a different meaning for me. Mm -hmm. I also think that white people should be allies to other white people who mirror who they are. White people who are not necessarily on the journey and don't get it, but often look to people of color for that help or for that uh, growth. And sometimes that becomes, that can weigh, weigh you down 
and that becomes very frustrating and exhausting to have to respond to every white person who is <laughs> not on the journey and not getting it. And so I always say white people should teach other white people uh, about the movement, about the mission, about the journey, and what they can do to help to level the playing field. So that's kind of where I see the allyship playing in, in as well. Uh, certainly it takes all of us, um, you know, from all uh, backgrounds, all walks of life, to change many of the things that we're seeing going on in the world, and especially today. Um, I also like the term accomplice, mm-hmm. the idea that um, this is a role that doesn't just involve a stance, but then also can move on into action. Mm-hmm. So from our stance, then we choose actions, and we can uh, work together. And uh, yeah, that's a really good point about being an ally to, you know, my my other white friends and associates that it's really important for them to hear from me and for me to be listening to them mm-hmm. as we um, move along. And that's the same with people of color. It's important for me as a person of color to be allies to other people of color who might be struggling, who might be exhausted, who might be tired, uh, who might be just frustrated with some of the things that we see in order to continue to encourage uh, that person uh, to continue on this movement and to just be in a space of uh, healing. Uh, so that's it, it goes both ways. So another term we might think about is internalized racism. Uh, actually, the definition of internalized racism is anytime a group of people is internal is systematically oppressed, they will internalize that oppression and enact that oppression out on themselves and people who look like them. So we see black-on-black crime. Some of the other ways we see internalized oppression playing out is through colorism, uh, light skin versus dark skin. I know coming up, and I won't uh, reveal my age, but coming up, there was the paper bag test. And if you were lighter than a paper bag, you had certain access to goods, resources, benefits, and privileges that a person who of darker skin uh, did not necessarily have. We can also go back to slavery and talk about who was allowed to be in the house and who was allowed to be in the house, out of the, uh, who was out of, in the fields. And there's a whole term that was given to, to that. Another way that we divide ourselves is around what we call good hair versus bad hair. And we see that played out in some of the movies. Uh, you can go back to some of Spike Lee's movies, School Days, where it was light skin versus dark skin, but also good hair versus bad hair that played out. And there are a number of uh, YouTube videos that talk about that. So that is the way we see internalized racism playing out. Um, we can also talk about how we discipline our kids and how that is a part of the whole internalized racism piece. You know, back in the day, during slavery times, uh, the master would come on out into the field and watch the young men working. He might say to the mother, oh, uh, Tony is sure is getting muscular and growing up to be a fine young man. And the mother would cut the will of the son as a way of surviving, uh, keeping her son alive. She would say, oh, no, he's shiftless. He's a dumb boy. He's not going to mount to nothing. And that was a way of keeping Tony or that, that young man alive because if Tony would rise up against the master who would come after his sister or come after his mother to rape her, you know, Tony would be killed or sold off. 
and we see some residual effects, some residue still today from that as we see parents harshly chastising their, their sons mainly, and but, but chastising their daughters as well. You know, back in the day, it served a purpose to keep your kids alive, but today it does not serve a purpose. Uh, so that's just the way we see internalized racism playing out. Yeah, there's so much there to um, to think about and to uh, manage in life. I know as a, a white person, it's really important for me that I respect this boundary, that internalized oppression is not something for me to uh, name or to um, try to... You know, try to in any way sort of suggest where it might be or um, when, how someone might be experiencing that. And it's important for me to respect yeah, uh, and, people's uh, experience. Certainly. And as we, t- we talk about internalized racism, but there are also, there's internalized sexism and internalized classism, mm-hmm. you know, and those are other ways that, we, that internalized peace plays out. That's true. That's true. So whatever sort of isms there are, right. they can be internalized. And that certainly is one of the... I mean, that's one of the ways that isms play out. That's one part of the power of it. Absolutely. Right? As we get the, we, we get the oppressed <laughs> to agree with the oppressor. And then that's how we can just keep reinforcing that. Yeah, as they say, the mind of the oppressed is the tool of the oppressor. Oh, Tony, you're so... You just lay one after another out on me here. <laughs> that's a good one. All right. So here's one. Privilege deniers. Ooh. Yeah, good one. In your social justice work, I guess you've encountered this kind of every five minutes or... Of course. (laughs) Uh, So when when we talk about privilege deniers um, and when we talk about race, we're looking at white people who want to say, you know, I am not privileged. And I can remember struggling with this when I was first... Um, when I was first introduced to this concept, I too had a, had a struggle with this. And I still am struggling to try to recognize and unpack, you know, all the ways in which my privilege plays itself out. But privilege basically is when someone is a part of this, uh, you know, within the power group. And um, in our society, uh, it's, you know, white people in terms of racially who have the power. And... Um, People who want to say that privilege is not real. Absolutely. And uh, want to say, well, I'm not privileged. Here was my script. My script was, um, oh, no, you know, my parents grew up poor. My grandparents, you know, lived in a house with a dirt floor. They worked very hard. They suffered. They had to create their own uh, success. And then they passed that down to me. Well, here's what I didn't think about was that as white people, there were certain structures in place that, that built that ladder for them that they could climb up. And um, if you are not in that privilege group, there are structures in place to push you off the ladder, to uh, make you have to climb twice as high, um, to, I mean, all sorts of things that are set up in place. And as a white person, okay, I could get up the ladder. It doesn't mean that a person doesn't suffer. It doesn't mean that a person doesn't work hard. It doesn't mean that there aren't social challenges. Um, But it does mean that 
my race is not one of those difficulties. Right, and it's important uh, for white people to understand that privilege is not distributed distributed equally. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there may be some, time, some white people that struggled, and that's something else that we can talk about, which is around classism. However, around skin color, you know, privilege might not get uh, distributed equally. And then we have uh, also where we have people of color that talk about privilege, which that is not, that does not exist. People of, and I must say within the context of the United States of America, this is what we're talking about. It might look a lot different in another country. But in terms of black people, we can have advantage, we can have influence, uh, we have situational advantage. You know, individuals might want to say, well, I know a, a black person who's president of this company, or we've had a black president. So you have situational advantage and situational influence, but privilege is rooted in systems. And when you think of systems that uh, move the United States and systems that we operate under, uh, systems uh, and privileges rooted in power. So prejudice plus power uh, gives you the the whole uh, privilege piece, the racism piece. Yeah, it's uh, hard to think about um, and you how to talk to somebody who is denying that privilege exists. And I also think of it sometimes as, you know, the fish swimming in the water, that the fish doesn't recognize that they're swimming in water. Absolutely. It doesn't see the water. And that's what happens when you're immersed in privilege. You, you don't recognize all of these components that are part of your society that are working to support you and to make your um, experience that of what society is going to call it the norm. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And that leads us into our, our next around confusion between racism and classism. Yes, very connected. You know, um, racism is around skin color, you know, based on skin color. And again, this is the context of the United States of America. And classism is around socioeconomic status. Uh, we talk about the owning class and the ruling class. Uh, being in the top of the ring, uh, top of the uh, fabric, if you will, uh, where they receive access to goods, resources, benefits, rewards, opportunities, etc. And then we can go on down the ladder, if you will. You have the working class and the working poor and people living in poverty and homeless uh, and all receive less and sometimes no Uh, access to goods, resources, benefits, um, rewards. And the way the oppression sits on class is called classism, and that's uh, simply based on socioeconomics. Racism, again, and we've talked about that previously, is based on race. We know that race in itself, there's no biological scientific evidence that race exists, but we do know that racism, the way racism has, has been divided, that that does exist. So this goes along with another term that, um, or concept that um, we didn't have on our list, but it does come to mind when you talk about that, the idea of race as a social construct. Right. So the idea that there's no biological basis, you, you just cannot look at DNA and right. say, you know, this race, this race, this race, or the, you know, whatever it might be. And so, however... You know, we do identify within certain races or, you know, we certainly see racism functioning and people certainly use 
labels of race. And so that's how it occurs. It occurs through social development. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are ways that uh, society has intentionally architectured structures and ways um, for one group to be elevated over another group. We can look at education, we can look at healthcare systems, we can look at housing, we can look at nutrition and healthcare. There are all types of ways that the society has structured itself and um, for one group to be elevated while other groups are oppressed. Right, and the whole history of the development of whiteness, I mean, that was a legal, that was politically and legally Absolutely. created historically yeah. as you mm -hmm. look uh, at the, you know, as you look at our nation and, and how it developed. Yeah. Uh, so another term is oppression Olympics. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, so as good ratings on the... Networks, they bid for who's going to... Right. You know, my oppression is worse than your oppression. And, there we you go. You know, let me tell you about my hurt. My pain is worse than your pain. You know, and, and that doesn't really move the... get us anyplace. That doesn't move the mark in terms of all of us wanting to heal. Uh, and certainly there are spaces and places where all of us have been oppressed. And it's, it's just not good to play the oppression Olympic game. Uh, nobody wins in that. Uh, the game that I want to play is the game of being, and not necessarily a game, I use that freely, but being able to be allies to other individuals who are oppressed, to women who are oppressed. How can I be an ally? How can I flex my uh, privilege as being a man uh, to women who are oppressed or individuals in certain religions or certain uh, sexual orientations? You know, How can I flex my privilege in those areas? Um, so just not good to play the oppression Olympic game. Right. I know, I think feminism and its development in this country has had an issue with oppression Olympics. Like, mm -hmm. it's worse to be a woman than it is to be uh, black. And so first we're going to deal with this, and then we'll deal with that. And I, white feminism was just um, kind of outrageous in that with, those, with blinders like that. And I think uh, it's better for everyone, as you said, if we can recognize... Um, overcoming oppression requires partnership, and it requires listening. And uh, we do get wrapped up in our own experiences. You know, we universalize based on ourselves, and we're the center of that universe. And, you know, if, if what we can recognize is that, you know, the, the more oppressions we can both recognize but also lift up together— you know, the more effective we're going to be. That's um, one of the things that we found is if you are uplifting people who already have a certain level of privilege, then other folks are going to get left behind. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, um, I kind of like the term because, you know, it requires a sense of humor <laughs> to think of something as, as the oppression Olympics. Um, here's another one, implicit bias. Mm. So implicit bias being um, a prejudice that uh, may cause people to see something in a certain way as somebody as less than for whatever reason and not be aware of it. So implicit bias is universal. Everyone has implicit bias of one way or another, one, one type or another. And... Of course, how do we free ourselves of implicit bias, but we try to make it explicit. 
So it requires a lot of self-reflection, and sometimes it requires having a people who are trusted in your environment that you're in relationship with who can say, have you ever thought about this? Yeah, you know, what comes to mind for me is the iceberg. And many of you have probably mm. seen the picture of the iceberg where there, there's a small portion on top of the water, but then there's a very large portion on the bottom of the water. And that very large portion of the messages that we take in through what, what is called the lizard brain, uh, we're taking in thousands and thousands of pieces of information that get stored uh, in that underwater part. And eventually, at some point in time, we act on some of those things that got stored. And sometimes we don't even realize it's there. Or we say, where did that come from? Where did that thought come from? Where did that attitude or that action come from? And it had been stored in that underwater part of the iceberg. So that's kind of one way to think about it. Another way to think about it is that we grew up, we were socialized to make all types of assumptions. You know, if I say salt, somebody will say pepper. If I say up, somebody will say down. If I said um, blue, somebody will say red. And where do we make those associations and how do we make those associations coming up? And so sometimes when we see certain things in the media, certain things come to mind, you know. Uh, it's like if I'm listening to television and my back is to the TV and I hear that somebody has been killed, the first thing that comes to mind is, oh, I hope a black person didn't do it. You know, I've made an association that every time somebody gets killed, that it might be a black person that is behind the killing. And that's not necessarily true. But somehow, through media, I've come to understand that a lot of killings are associated with black people doing the killing. Those are just, and, and then there are ways that we prime one another. Um, so, you know, those are just some ways to think about implicit bias and how it plays out. Um, you can sometimes recognize implicit bias if, as a teacher, if you're looking at your data and can see, for example, just asking someone to track for you, even asking one of your students to track for you, how often do I call on girls? How often do I call on boys? Um, how long do I, what do I, how long do I wait before I'll take an answer? Um, all of those things sort of can play into our biases of many sorts um, that, that we can look at and examine and, you know, try to rise above that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So another term is colorblind and color brave, and you may have heard both of those terms, you know, and rightfully so. I can remember back in my school days, uh, college days, uh, there was a righteous intention behind being colorblind. It was you want to see kids that you're working with. I was coming through the School of Education. You want to see kids that you're working with as all the same. It was a righteous intention about it. However, if I don't recognize individuals' uh, colors, I don't recognize their experience. I can't fight racism if I don't see color. And it's no such thing anyway as being colorblind. Uh, color Brave takes the opposite approach and to say that I'm going to speak out against the injustices, injustices that I see. That's being color brave, talk, uh, speaking out against some of the things that may be going on against other cultures, whether it's the Jewish culture, or the Asian culture, or you know the uh, African-American uh, groups. Uh, you're going to stand up and you're going to speak out. You're going to be color brave. I think for a white person, even acknowledging race can be color brave. Absolutely. For so many white people, um, you know, we're, we're taught that it's not polite to talk about race. Yeah. 
and um, I can make a lot of guesses about where that might come from. But um, I found that that was one of the things that was most important for my students was for me to acknowledge that I saw myself as white and that um, I wanted to for them to bring their full identity and their full experience into the class. And so we did talk about race and um, could identify, you know, our writers according to what race they are, could identify ourselves according to our experiences are shaped by Mm -hmm. our race and who we are. And, um, you you know, for, again, for a white teacher, um, a lot of students found that really kind of fresh that a white teacher would be talking about race. And I, I really would like to see us where every teacher um, can talk about their racial identity and that role that that plays for them and how they work in their classroom so that students can be affirmed to, um, you know, explore the whole of their identities too. Yeah, you know, and some of that is, is happening. Just last week I uh, read to a group of students in the Freedom Schools over in the Webster Grove School District and it was really amazing. I was reading a book, and I would show the, the kids the pictures. When I turned the picture around and I asked the, the uh, group to tell me what do you see in this picture, and there was a little boy that raised his hand, and he said, I see white and black people helping one another. And then he said, oh, and there's an Asian woman over there. And I just thought, wow, you know, to recognize it, but not only recognize it, but to be excited about it and to be able to kind of scream it out, you know, how? how great that is for kids to be able to just have that freedom to talk about race. And that's been color brave. That is, that is a good example. Uh, It's nice to hear that kind of energy and um, joy coming along with that. Um, This term that I have in some ways I think might be related is the white savior complex. Mm. So um, again, this is a good one for me to talk about because uh, part of my journey Certainly, you know, there. So, white savior complex the idea that it is the job of a white person to save um, people in an oppressed group from their oppression. So, um, I, I would say when I first was working with African American students um, decades ago, and I really felt like it was my job to help those black kids to you know, do better in life, to rise up. And although it is the job of all teachers to help all students rise up, the idea that I, as a white person, that that was my particular job was to do the favor for um, students of that identity, that was racism at work. Mm-hmm. Because, it, uh, you know, that demonstrates the superiority that I'd been taught about being white. And even though I wouldn't have named myself as white, I just knew that that was my job, was to help those poor black kids. Ugh, yeah, sad thing I to... often see it as mission work versus justice work. You know, there's a group and I should, that should go unnamed that uh, was interested in working with this one group that I am affiliated with. So it was an all-white group that's interested in working with an all-black group um, to bring some healing around the St. Louis area. And so their idea of working was to give away, let's give away 500 book bags to this school and, you know, let's go and build, uh, give away another 100 to this school. And, and I just said, I'm not about, I'm not interested in mission work. 
I'm interested in justice work, and justice work looks a little different. I'm interested in knowing how can you use your white privilege and all the people that is a part of your organization to change the system? How can, you know, in all your organizations, um, and, and I'm sure that each of these individuals, they were on, they are CEOs and presidents and, and big, uh, they have big jobs. And I'm sure that most of their boards or all of their boards are all white. Uh, the structures are all white. When you look at management in a lot of the, or their organizations, the top management and middle-level management is pretty much 95% or percent white or higher. So how can you start to change those structures? You know, How do you do justice work and start to change some of the scaffolding that uh, is in place to elevate individuals who don't look like me? And so that's the work that I'm interested in. You know, mission work has its place, but I'm not really interested in the mission part. I'm interested in the justice part. I could really see, I love that distinction, mission work versus justice work. Um, that's part of the difference, you know, of charity um, as opposed to partnership to yeah. and recognizing, you know, who, who has the power, who has the voice. Absolutely. In any of these uh, actions, um, this really came to bear on me. I could really recognize it when I was at the National Museum of African American History in Washington D.C. And one of the things that I appreciated about that experience is that that whole museum presented in the voice and perspective of the people who lived it. And for me to see and hear these voices that in my education had been had not been told. Rather, what I'd been hearing was the white perspective. So, you know, civil rights wants to focus everything on Martin Luther King, for example. And yet there's a whole entire African community involved in this that, you know, Martin Luther King is a component of, or looking at slavery and how slavery was overcome. It, it wasn't Abraham Lincoln signing the, you know, Emancipation Proclamation, while that was a necessary step, there was resistance to slavery throughout the whole, throughout all of history. Yeah that um, African-American people were putting forward. And um, for those voices and experiences to be elevated and put up in front of my eyes, which as a white person and being educated in primarily white institutions, that hadn't been done for me. Mm. And um, I just think, you know, the, the whole concept of a white savior complex, it's easy to see why it develops when... That's the only story that I heard yeah. was a white perspective. Absolutely, absolutely. So this has been a great episode. Uh, this is our has been our last episode of season one of Just Talk. We should be thinking about what are our summer readings. What suggestions do you have, Deborah? I'm looking right now. I'm reading White Rage by Carol Anderson. So speaking of white fragility. <laughs> She's she's uh, amped it up a little bit and, and is calling it white rage because I do think that's an expression of that. But that's a nonfiction piece, and she explores how um, historically she she reviews all the political activity since the Civil War that's been put in place that basically expresses white rage against people of color in order to create a system that um, disadvantages black people in just every single possible way. Um, just a fascinating book. 
Hmm. How about you, Tony? Well, you know, actually, I, I get a subscription to Teaching Tolerance and Rethinking Schools, and they have just stacked up over the last four or five months. So I'm going back and just reading articles in uh, those two books. And then I'm getting ready to take this big trip over to Africa, so I'm doing some reading about some things that I'm going to be doing over there. So that's pretty much what I'm doing right now. That's, um, I mean, I'm looking forward to hearing more about that trip. You're going to Congo and Rwanda. Yes, okay. yes, yes. Be happy to share that with the, with the audience. Right. Um, how about someplace to visit? You know, we have a little time this summer to maybe take a road trip here or there. Um, you want to talk about maybe some important places that people yeah, could Some important look at. places. One I would definitely highly recommend is Montgomery, Alabama, the... Uh, new museum there. It's the Museum on Lynching, and you might have seen it on 60 Minutes, but it's uh, very powerful. Everyone needs to see it. And, you know, when you go, plan to spend uh, the day. You know, I went planning to say, okay, we'll stop through here for a couple hours. And it was just so moving that you had to stop and sit at points and just sit and sometimes cry and sometimes reflect and sometimes pray. And it takes you through that whole continuum. So, I would definitely say, you know, make that a stop. Thanks, Tony, for season one. I just have been so honored and uh, privileged to be your partner on this Oh, this has been this dynamic, venture. and I feel the same, Deborah. Thank you, and I look forward to season two. This has been Tony Neal, your host. And Deborah Bullman, today's co-host and podcast producer and director. Bringing you Just Talk, Educational Equity. Listeners, we appreciate that you joined us for this episode 10 of our first season, and we invite you to share your comments, questions, and suggestions on our website at eec4justice.com. And leave us an email there on our contact page. Also, and this is important, if you enjoyed today's podcast, we hope you'll find us on iTunes and leave us a rating. All of those listeners that weigh in help people find us through that, and we appreciate your support. Just Talk has been brought to you by Educational Equity Consultants, a company that provides training to build capacity of individual schools and other organizations to address racism in ways that enable all people to reclaim their inherent intelligence and nobility. Recording, editing, music, and logo provided by Alvin Zamudio. So if you're a teacher or school leader, a student, a parent, or a community member concerned about social justice, please remember, Just, just Talk. talk.